Good evening, everybody. Hello, hello, and welcome. I'm Bruce Garner. I'm reasonably sure I know all of you, but if I don't, uh, my name's Bruce Garner. I'm the senior pastor here at Crosspoint, and welcome to something very much out of the box for us. I don't remember the last time we had an evening lecture by a philosopher. It may be the first, uh, but I'm certainly hopeful that it won't be the last. Uh, Dr. Sam Wellbaum is a professor of philosophy at Cal Baptist University. He also directs the honors program at that school, and for whatever it's worth to you, I love Cal Baptist. We currently have a college student uh, who's studying ministry at Cal Baptist, who's uh, living with us for the summer. And just for the questions he asks and the conversations we have, I know he's being provided a really solid biblical uh, education at that school, and he's being taught to think as well. And that is one of the things, certainly, that C.S. Lewis helps us with. He helps us learn how to think. And my friend Sam here, who's also a member of our church, has been posting some Lewis quotes on his Facebook page. Uh, 1942, is that right? When, when, the, when this was written? Okay, so it was written in 1941, and it's just prophetic. It's stunning, the things that, that uh, Lewis was putting in the, in the mouth of his character in the screw tape letters that speak so clearly, so incisively to our own time. So... Uh, let's pray together, and we'll dive right into C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. Father, thank you for this evening. Uh, thank you, Lord, for uh, preparing scholars that are a gift to your church. Uh, often criticized, Lord, and, and derided by people who haven't taken the time to think through issues as those who are superfluous, but they're, they're not, Lord. They're manning the back line, helping us learn how to think, teaching us things that we otherwise uh, may never even have heard of, and it's all for your glory. It's for our good, Lord, to learn how to use the minds you've given us, think your thoughts after you learn how to live well in the world as followers of Jesus. So thank you for Sam and his family. Thank you for their presence and participation, Lord, in this fellowship of our church, and bless him as he teaches us tonight. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you help me welcome Dr. Sam Wellbaum. All right, hello, um, good evening. Thank you guys for being here, otherwise you wouldn't be. Uh, and then I, I, would, I would then, I, would, I felt like Bruce when the pandemic started, I'd be talking to an empty room, uh, but the people online would have no clue about that and I'd say it was just packed. Uh, but no, thank you, uh, thank you guys for being here. Uh, you know, as, as Pastor Bruce said, this is a, a new thing uh, for, for Crosspoint. It's a new thing for me. Uh, I just sent him a message and said, hey, if you ever want someone to teach something, and he's like, yeah, do it. <laughs> and I was like, well, what do you want me to teach? He goes, just anything, just, just what, do you, what do you want to teach? And I was like, what do you want me to teach? He said, what do you want to teach? I was like, I don't know, what do you want me to teach? Uh, and it became a weird thing for like three weeks. Uh, and so I, I gave him a, a few lists, and we, we landed here uh, to talk about C.S. Lewis and talk about the screw tape letters, and I'm, uh, I'm happy to do it. Uh, I'm a huge C.S. Lewis fan. Um, C.S. Lewis is one of the most profound uh, thinkers probably in the history of the church, uh, but definitely uh, in the last 100 years. Uh, his impact has been uh, substantial. Uh, when I was first introduced to him, which I phrased it this way one time talking to somebody, and they were amazed that I met C.S. Lewis. Uh, and I didn't because I'm not that old. Uh, and uh, I had to... I had to explain what I met by met C.S. Lewis, but I, I was in high school uh, when I first read the Narnia Chronicles uh, because I was working at a place called the Christian Research Institute, uh, which was down in South County, uh, and when you were not answering phone calls, you could read anything on the library, and I thought, I'm an 18-year-old about to graduate high school in a month. Uh, I should read children's books, uh, and I did, uh, and then uh, I just kept plowing through uh, C.S. Lewis's books uh, to the point that I say this uh, more proud than I probably should, but my car is the one in the parking lot with C.S. Lewis as the license plate. Uh, I had to replace the letter I with the number one because the, the, the president of the C.S. Lewis Foundation in Redlands beat me to it, but I think that makes it look better. Uh, and so I, I'm, I'm hugely uh, focused. And when it comes to his books, 
thinking through the screw tape letters, uh, I'm happy to get a chance to do that. Whereas he's most well known for his Narnia Chronicles. Uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe frequently appears on lists of the best-selling books of all times. Um, Mere Christianity is probably his most well-known non-children's book. Both of those, though, were able to attain the level that they did because the screw tape letters made him, uh, made him a household name. It wasn't the first book that he wrote. Uh, he wrote a few beforehand, but this is the one that gained him massive uh, renown. It's actually interesting, as we begin to kind of dive into this, I want to give you a little bit of background about what's going on in his, period, in his mind during this period. Uh, this is what Lewis scholars refer to as his hellish period, uh, because he has four simultaneous books that he's working on that all kind of deal with the demonic and the hellish, all right? He had already published before this a book called Out of the Silent Planet. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, that's the first volume in a space trilogy, uh, which is a science fiction uh, book series that he wrote, which I would highly recommend to everybody, because um, the first two books are amazing. And the third book, 50% of it's awesome, uh, and the other 50% of it, is unnecessary, but he wrote it in the style of another author, and that explains that. But if you start at page 150, it gets real good. Uh, but so, <laughs> before that, I'm just going through, I'm like, Clive, what are you doing? Because we're on a first name basis. I'm like, what's happening? Uh, but then you hit that and it goes amazing. Um, but in this, that second book in the space trilogy is called Paralandra. The, the, the overarching idea of that book is that the main character, Ransom, has to go to Venus to stop Venus's Adam and Eve from committing the Genesis 3 fall. And so the entirety of that book is this character interacting with a demon or the devil and trying to stop temptation from happening. Well, he finishes that manuscript and he's editing that while he's also writing this book called The Hideous Strength, which is the third volume of the Space Trilogy. And in that one, it's happening here on Earth, and it's about an evil demonic organization that seizes control of the news, the media, and the academy, and is trying to move everything in society towards darkness. Uh, so, you know, do with that what you will. Uh, but so there, there's this, and so he's writing that. And so as he's writing these two books, and he starts writing this third one called The Great Divorce, which is about people who spend a little bit of time in hell, and then get a chance to go to heaven and they don't want to. As he's thinking through what makes it so that humans are so attracted to sin, he writes this one, which is a screw tape letters, which is a series of fictional letters uh, written by a senior tempter, screw tape, to his young nephew, Wormwood, uh, who's working on tempting his patient or a human uh, to try to pull them away from God. If you've read it, you know what I'm talking about. If not, these terms are odd, uh, but it, the entirety, Lewis actually considers this the most exhausting book he wrote. After he finished it, people asked for a sequel, and he's like, that's not going to happen. Uh, he called it demonic ventriloquism, uh, and he said it was really difficult. 20 years after it's published, he writes a small sequel called uh, Screwtape Proposes a Toast, which is in most, most editions of the Screwtape Letters. Um, but beyond that, he doesn't do any more of it because he said it's so difficult to think through and try and think this way and write this way, right? Referring to God as the enemy, referring to Satan as the father below. Like this type of way of thinking gets tired. He actually said that to make the book work a little better, that there should be an angelic parallel a series of letters written from an angel to another angel. And a, a Lewis scholar in the past like three years actually found a fragment where Lewis tried to write that book. And he tried for about 250 words, and then he gave up because uh, he's like, yeah, I can't do that. That one's harder. Uh, it's easier for me to imagine how to be tempted than how not to be tempted. Uh, like, and so he backed away from that. And I think that makes sense. Um, but the importance of this book and why it's such a big deal is the fact that the entirety of the book is about how to know your weaknesses. The entirety of the book is about thinking through, hey, if a demon were going to tempt you to do something, how would that happen? What would the rationale be? Because the fact is, we're blind to our weaknesses frequently, right? Maybe we know some of them, we kind of laugh them off or don't take them seriously, but we're blind to our weaknesses in a lot of areas. And those weaknesses that area where we're not strong, that the area where we have gaps, that is where Satan is able to launch his attack and get us to stumble, to get us to fall, maybe to get us to fall huge because we're not aware of those, we're not thinking about those. And so this book encourages us to think through those matters. It encourages us to think like the enemy. 
And thinking like the enemy, being able to think like the enemy is one of the most important things that we can do in any area of life where you have enemies, uh, right? The idea of this, if you're playing a game of chess, right? Being able to outthink the person who's playing against you or just have a basic understanding of the rules, but to be able to think about the, outthink the person who's playing against you, right? The ability to think like the enemy is why Operation Overlord worked and why we were able to storm Normandy in World War II. Allied High Command looked and said, well, this is where it's narrowest between Britain and France. So we're not going to attack there because that's where the Germans will expect it. We're gonna go here. Right now it's super choppy, but in a month, all the seas will be calm. So they're gonna expect us to attack then. So we're gonna go where it's longer and go when it's harder and they won't be expecting it. And sure enough, when the Allies invaded Normandy, the Germans had all, the, all their forces primarily uh, stacked over here. It was lighter over here. And German high command actually was on vacation in Berlin visiting his wife because he thought he had two weeks before the attack happened. They thought like the enemy, they outthought like the enemy, and they were able to uh, go there, and it worked out quite well. If we're able to think like the enemy and anticipate what attacks look like, anticipate what those moves look like, then we can be victorious in areas. And as we're talking about the Christian life, if we're able to think like the demonic forces, think like the forces of darkness that are trying to pull us into rebellion from God, then we can lead towards greater obedience because we're able to shore up and block off and watch off those things. Now realize this book is a work of fiction. Uh, it's not real. Maybe I should preface that. Uh, these are not actual letters that were picked up. Uh, interesting, just another interesting note that maybe like one of you will care about, uh, but that character I mentioned from the Space Trilogy, Ransom, in a first edition of the Screwtape Letters, he was the one that Lewis had translate the letters. Uh, and then he didn't for some reason, which I'm kind of heartbroken about now. Uh, I, I wish I had not known that. Uh, but so this is not, it's also, it's not scripture. In fact, a lot of the bits and movements in here kind of are things that might have a little bit of a, you know, questionable type of theology. Lewis takes some liberties here. Right? And that's important to understand, but the general concepts are what matter. Now, as I was kind of thinking through what in here to highlight, as I was re-going through and rereading and making my notes, and then my page of notes became two pages of notes, which became three pages of notes, uh, and then four, and I was like, oh, I need to say this. Oh, I should say this, and this, and this, and this. And it roughly turned into me just reading the book to you, uh, which uh, maybe it'd be interesting, but I, I'm, I, I don't know that we have that time, even though I'm a quick speaker, uh, and I think I would get bored doing that. Uh, so uh, we decided, I decided not to do that. What I want to do instead uh, is boil this down into kind of five important ideas, right? Five important ideas that if you've read the book, I wanna make sure you caught. Uh, if you're in the process of reading the book, that I wanna make sure you catch. And if uh, you're, you accidentally showed up here uh, thinking this was something else and now you're too embarrassed to leave. Uh, I hope we'll convince you to read the book uh, as we're looking through matters. So I, I wanna make sure we catch these five things. The first one that I think stands out most here is that we often get Satan's goal wrong. We very much misunderstand what Satan is trying to do. And the reason we do this is because we get God's goal wrong. All right, we very much think that God's goal is our happiness, right? And the things that make us happy are what God wants to give us, right? And we, we might sit there and push back and deny it a little bit and say, no, 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 I don't think God wants me to be happy. I just think he doesn't want me to be unhappy. Uh, and so he, you know, whether or not he'll get whatever. And we, we plow through scripture to try and find verses to justify it. We take Jeremiah 29, 11 and mangle it and twist it in ways it was never intended to, to say that God wants me to, pro, uh, to, to prosper. I almost said perspire, which is not the same, uh, but prosper and be, uh, you know, just so happy and overwhelmed. But the fact is this, God's goal is not our happiness. That's not to say that, that the God of Christianity wants us to be sullen and unhappy all of the time. No, but God's overwhelming goal is not our happiness, it's our holiness, Right. God desires that we are happy in holiness. God desires that we delight in holy things. But God's overwhelming top of the goal thing is not that he makes Sam Wellbaum happy. 
my inclination is to presume that that's what he wants. And so anything in my life that makes me unhappy clearly is not from God and clearly is from the forces of darkness. But that's not necessarily the case. Because, gosh, if there's anything in our lives that we delight in that are antithetical to who God is, then yes, God wants us to be unhappy in that situation. One of my favorite examples of this that I've seen, um, I'm sure some of you are familiar with the um, Desiring God Ministries and John Piper. John Piper has a book called Don't Waste Your Life. Uh, and based, up the, uh, based upon that, they made a documentary you can find on YouTube called Don't Waste Your Life Sentence. Uh, and it's an interview with inmates who are serving life sentences in uh, prison who have converted to Christianity. And, and when you hear them, the, one of the inmates very boldly just said, had I not been caught, he goes, when I got caught, I thought this was the worst thing ever. I was unhappy. I was miserable. Had I not been caught, I never would have come to saving faith in Christ. I'm so thankful that I got put in prison, which is this astounding thing to think about because obviously... I would imagine, having never gone to prison outside of Monopoly, that I, I would not care for being there, right? But this idea of presuming that being in prison uh, is necessarily a bad for him, he said, no, this is actually quite good. I, 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 I actually would ask you not to stand up and tell me whatever sinful things you enjoy. That, that would make this such a weird time for all of us. But whatever thing it is that you sinfully enjoy, the fact is God certainly wants to make you uncomfortable in that area because that's being happy in something you ought not be happy in. So we have this mistaken idea that God wants us to be happy perpetually without the idea of the fact that we need to change what we are happy in. So because of that, we assume that if God wants me to be constantly happy, Satan must be the source of anything that makes me unhappy, right? Anything that makes me completely unhappy, which, uh, you know, one, Screwtape talks about in his, uh, in his toast that I told you that he wrote as a sequel, when he says, no, our concern is the destruction of people. We don't necessarily care about whether or not they're happy or not. Sure, it's, they say it's fun and entertaining when misfortune happens, but we care about their destruction. We don't care necessarily about whether or not that, in fact, it's to their benefit that people can be destroyed while being quite happy. And so we easily project on this. So things like sickness, death, and disease, we can easily project that all on Satan and say, this is all his doing. This is bad because we assume that anything we don't like comes from the devil. On page 131, uh, he talks about the fact that humans consider death to be the greatest evil and survival the greatest good. Now, please, please note, death is not... I'm actually going to co contradict something you've probably heard your entire life. Uh, death is not natural. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. Death is not a part of life. We were not created to die. Death is an unnatural thing. It's one of the reasons why we hate it so much. Right? It's, it's a lot like ranch dressing. It's not supposed to exist. That's, all right, good. That one landed. I got a few people with me. I, I, I refer to that as the devil's ketchup. I usually I can't. I can't make those jokes anymore. It's, it's considered hateful, but I took a, took a stab that you guys were with me. Um, but so the fact is, it's, it's unnatural. Death is not supposed to be the way that it is. We're not supposed to be separated from our body. We're not supposed to be separated from those we have community with. Death is put in because of sin. So certainly, there is the fact that there's this unnatural aspect of it. However, there have been plenty of deaths that have been used for the purpose of serving the Lord. There have been plenty of people where that were, were death. So we can't necessarily always look at death or disease. Gosh, it's surprisingly enough, obviously it's been virtual, but COVID has not been horrible for people returning to hearing about spiritual matters. Because in the midst of the isolation, in the midst of the fear, in the midst of facing the disease, a lot of spiritual questions started coming up. So death and disease, we can't necessarily always do it, but we assume it is because that's the things that we are most scared of. In the preface on page eight, at least on, on my copy, which is not the most updated copy, page eight, Screwtape writes, uh, Lewis says this rather, devils are depicted with bat wings and angels with bird wings, not because anyone holds the moral deterioration would likely turn feathers into membrane, but because most men like birds better than bats. Right? When we think of an angel, oh, they're angelic, they're beautiful, they have these flowing wings with feathers, and demons are ugly, uh, and they have these scary bat wings. It's not because bats or birds are any more holy than the other. One terrifies us, and one 
only terrifies us sometimes, uh, right? It's a, it's a different type of terror, right? When I see a bat, I assume it's going to kill me. When I see a seagull, I assume I'm going to the car wash, uh, right? It's, it's like it's a different type of fear, right, that you get. Uh, but so we have this idea here. But so we have this. So what happens, though, is we miss this, this fact that we project so much of our dislike or our distaste on these things and just presume that that is what's coming from Satan, right? Uh, Screwtape warns uh, Wormwood, it says, don't put too much hope in war, right? He was so excited, he goes, war, he goes, don't put too much hope in war. war. War makes people think about death. War makes people take things seriously. We don't want war, he goes, like the demons, the, this, this makes people think about things of eternal consequence. We don't want people turning in and seeing a war on TV. We want them watching Dancing with the Stars, Right, because you don't think about anything deep or serious at that point in time, I'm told. Uh, like that's not, and again, I'm not saying that that's sinful. I'm just saying more that idea of being distracted and not think about something beyond itself. Let's not think about things of eternal consequence. That's the goal of what he's aiming at. In fact, it's actually better, screw tape prints that, uh, aims at here, it's actually better if we ignore death altogether. Here's a quote here. I'm going to see if in this lighting I'm able to pull off reading this uh, subsequently here, but he says this, how much better for us if all humans died in costly nursing homes amid doctors who lie, nurses who lie, friends who lie, as we have trained them, promising life to the dying, encouraging the belief that sickness excuses every indulgence, and even if our workers know their job, withholding all suggestion of a priest, lest it should betray to the sick man his true condition. And how disastrous for us is the continual remembrance of death which war enforces. One of our best weapons, contented worldliness, is rendered useless. In wartime, not even a human can believe that he is going to live forever. The idea that we're going to die is one of the most disquieting and terrifying ideas for a human. In fact, in the Western world, we do everything we can to hide this fact. If someone is getting close to death, we put them in a home where they're able to go off and that can, that can happen and the, the family doesn't necessarily need to deal with that. Or we, we have hospitals where they are able to do this. When it comes to the you know, remembrance with the funeral, we do everything we can to make it look like they are as alive as possible. In fact, we do everything we can to make the person look as um, look better dead than they did alive. Like we, we shellack them with all types of makeup. Uh, right? And again, please, please, everybody, I'm not saying that we should go the other way and just be like, that's what they look like. Uh, I'm not necessarily arguing this, but what I'm saying is we do whatever we can to hide the reality of death, which in previous generations we could not do, which in previous generations we would not want to do. But we do everything we can to hide death so we don't think about it often. If I, if I could just venture, that, that's one of the reasons actually why back in March 2020 the pandemic hit as hard as it did because all of a sudden the reality of death showed up in people's face. We built a culture around hiding it, and then all of a sudden death showed up and said, I'm real. And people had no clue what to do with it. And so they responded in two very different extreme ideas. One was go outside and lick every wall possible for some reason, uh, and the other was to wrap everyone in bubble wrap. Uh, and the, the best course of action was probably somewhere in between, I'm assuming, because uh, one of both of those seem extreme. But the fact is people got scared because reality death is death. Jonathan Edwards, if you're familiar with him, a Presbyterian minister, uh, if, if you're familiar with him, sadly, it's probably only from his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, uh, which makes it sound like Jonathan Edwards was real mad all the time, uh, where he wasn't. He was actually a very uh, loving and gentle person, uh, but he decided in his young 20s to live his life based on a set of resolutions. And one of those resolutions was to think frequently of the hour of his death. And to think frequently of the fact that it can happen at any moment and that in that moment he wants to be able to look back on what he did for God and be pleased and happy with it. I'll tell you this, we live differently when we think death is imminent. I, uh, I have spent the last week, no, the last month uh, playing a video game to a massive level. I've not allowed myself to play a video game for six years. Uh, and uh, for Christmas, I got a Nintendo Switch. And for Valentine's Day, I got a Legend of Zelda game. Uh, and I have played an obscene amount of this game because I've not done it for six years. But gosh, if I knew I was going to die at the end of June, I probably would have passed on that game. Or at least some of the side quests. 
like I would have, I would have aimed things differently uh, at this point in time because when you think readily about the fact that it could happen at any moment, you prioritize differently. Which is why for the, for the enemy, the tempters here in C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, they don't want people thinking about that because it's better to put people, make it to where people put obedience off. Obedience, that's a thing I can do next year. That's a church service I can go to next week. Because delayed obedience is not obedience, it's rebellion. And it's easier to do this. Number two, the second big idea, so we often get Satan goals, Satan's goals wrong. Number two is I want to think about the fact that disbelief in God can take multiple forms. All right, it's not necessarily the black and white, easily cut through idea. It can take multiple forms. Uh, in one of the letters Screwtape writes to Wormwood, he says, human, uh, when the humans believe in our existence, we lose all the pleasing results of direct terrorism, and we make no magicians. On the other hand, when they believe in us, we cannot make them materialists and skeptics. Thinking through, again, what the goal of the demonic forces are, the idea is this. If they're able to convince people that the spiritual world doesn't exist, the worst thing the demonic forces can do is all of a sudden show up and say, hey, I'm a demon, because then you now believe in the spiritual world. And if you believe in the spiritual world, bless you. If you believe in the spiritual world and you see a demon, you clearly are going to believe that angels exist. So in a world rampant with belief in spirituality, sure, your best game is going to be create a fake religion, right? Create something that looks a little bit like Christianity. Right? Take parts of Christianity, but add some golden plates to it. You know, do something where you're able to try and convince people of spiritual things. But if you're able to get to a secularized world where people don't believe in the spirit, spirit world, whew, you just let that lie. That's great. Sure, like he said here, imagining for the demons is not quite as fun. But they also don't have to do as much work. Because if what they're trying to do is foster rebellion, what they need to do then is not convince people individually to turn and rebel against God, but it's to keep people placated. Right? I mean, not that I want to compare all of us to angry three-year-olds, but I know this. It's a lot easier to keep my three-year-old placated than it is to try to calm down a meltdown that happened because somehow she was both standing and sitting in the wrong order uh, for some reason, which makes no sense. She definitely has an idea that she wants to do something, but also other people need to do it for her. Uh, and so trying to calm that meltdown down, very hard. But if I can keep her placated, that's, that's, super, that's much easier. So for the demonic forces, for the demonic forces, it's a lot easier to keep secularists secular. They get what they're trying to do. So in this world here, in a spiritual era, disbelief looks like other religions or pagan tribes or something. In a secular era, it looks like materialism. The idea that we could just increase in materialism. Now, we'll talk about some of, this, some of the issues with materialism in a bit. But so disbelief in God can look like a few different things. It can look like a positive belief in a different religion, a substitute religion, or it can look like the belief in the secularist, atheist, materialist mindset. <clears throat> Number three is that Satan cannot win a battle of reason. Throughout Screwtape Letters, they frequently talk about the fact that you cannot engage the patient's mind. You can't, because if God is truth, then deep thoughts about reality are not going to go well for the devil. You can't aim this way. Jargon, not argument, is your best ally in keeping him from the church. Don't waste your time trying to make him think that materialism tr is true. Make him think that it is strong or stark or that it is the philosophy of the future. Right? Don't waste your time trying to convince this person that materialism or secularism is right. Convince him that it's the, a thought of the future. Or perhaps we could phrase it's the right side of history. Don't make someone, don't worry about whether or not something is true. Worry about whether or not you can shame a person into acting a certain way. That's what matters. Again, keep in mind, I'm speaking, I'm, this is what the demons are saying. It's not me. And if you just jumped online, this seems like horrible advice from a professor from California Baptist University to be saying, uh, because I'm referencing and speaking like a demon at the... At, so when I was a youth pastor, uh, side note, uh, when I was a youth pastor, uh, I would take my groups out to like, 
go play mini golf or anything like that, I would tell them, I was like, guys, remember, you are representatives of Christ. You're representative of this church. Um, so do that. I'm like, if you act up, please remember to tell them that you are from Faith Lutheran. Uh, and if you really do a bad job, Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. Uh, like, just, just that's just get as far as we can. And uh, to, to my students' credit, one time, one of them uh, accidentally uh, said a rather worldly thing uh, in line at, 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 uh, at a go-kart area. And he just yelled out, I'm Lutheran! <laughs> and I was like, I, I shouldn't be as delighted that that happened as, as I should be, but it, was, it makes a good story. So... <clears throat> But so this idea here of jargon makes someone think that something is fashionable. Because if someone thinks that it's a fad, that everyone else is believing it, that it's the wave of the future and you don't want to get left behind, that convinces people much more readily than reason. And in fact, and this is going to sound much more insulting of all of us in the room that I want us to, but we're not rational people. I know you think you are. I have a doctorate. I teach, right? I'm an academic. I am not a rational person. I frequently make decisions for no rational reason whatsoever. And the majority of you do the exact same thing at the pension of perhaps an overshare. Uh, my favorite example of this was a choice I made in 2008. And I distinctly remember it, and it still makes sense to this day. But in 2008, I changed which deodorant I used. Because when I was in the deodorant aisle, I looked at all spi uh, 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 Old Spice. And I thought in the back of my head, I'm on a horse. And the reason I did, because Old Spice at that time had a commercial, a very funny commercial that ended with a gentleman saying, I'm on a horse. And I decided that commercial made me laugh enough, this company deserves my money. That is the worst reason to decide <laughs> what deodorant to wear, right? You should make choices based on, does it deodorize? Is it really antiperspirant? Like these choices, but I was like, you're funny. No, and the fact is we all make decisions like this. We make decisions about this, about what car we drive, where we live, who we vote for, what we wear, and we try to backtrack like it's a, like it's a rational decision. Now, St. Augustine had a phrase for this that was popularized by a, a later thinker named uh, Anselm, which is faith-seeking understanding. What happens is we have beliefs formed in us. Who knows where they come from? There's plenty of discussions in epistemology about where they come from, but beliefs pop up inside you. And then what we do is we search for any evidence to support that belief that we can find. If we're not able to find enough supporting beliefs for it, the beliefs crash and we move on. But we don't necessarily make choices because we're rational. In fact, we have plenty of irrational beliefs. I assume none of you believe in ghosts. Maybe some of you do. But if you also watch a movie that's like a little scary, like those last few steps up the stairs, like you're a little freaked out, right? Because like, oh, maybe there's someone there. It's a highly irrational belief, but we believe it. And so we don't necessarily always make choices that make rational sense. So to that, when Wormwood is telling Screwtape, don't engage in direct intellectual thing. Don't have him read science. That's going to go real bad for us. Make him think that if he believes this, he's old-fashioned, right? Make him think he's a boomer. Oh, is there anything worse than being a boomer right now in internet culture? <laughs> There's not. Uh, based on internet culture, I've been called one frequently, and I'm like, I'm 38. Uh, that's, that's not how time travel works. Um, but so this idea here is that you want to believe that. And so to this, he also further goes on and says, look, numbness is the devil's ally, right? Numbness is the devil's ally. We want people placating, we want people numb. If you're familiar with the book, uh, the, the Brave New World, right? If you keep people numb by pleasure, they're not able to think through or push back against things, right? Keep him from any real pain since it reveals the falseness of fake pain. Same with pleasure. False pleasures burn up. Right? That's what our society currently is built on right now is a pursuit of false evaporating pleasures. It's actually, I'm going to go ahead and reference the TV show here and I'm going to try just a massive spoiler, spoiler alert to a show that ended last year. I apologize. I'm going to destroy anyone right now. Uh, but there is a show called The Good Place. Uh, that happened. It's really, it's a, it's a philosopher sitcom, which meant I was, I was in the niche for it. But as they're trying to address questions, 
related to what heaven would be like. This is a TV show written by a secular thinker trying to imagine heaven, and all he could imagine heaven as was hellishly boring. Because eventually, everything that I find delight in, I get bored with, because I get bored with things here on earth, right? That's, that's the way it works with kids in Christmas. You get a new thing on December 25th, by January 25th, you're like, can I get more new things? Like, we, get, we, we burn through things, we get bored with them. And so clearly, that must be what heaven is like. Because he's unable to envision the fact that true pleasure, real pleasure, lasting pleasure, that doesn't come from something temporal, but rather comes from something eternal, is unending. Un, uh, it can never be exhausted and is perpetually satisfying. And so this idea here is that false pleasures burn up. So what they have to do is to try to aim at a type of numbness and just keep throwing more and more and more false pleasures at people. Try to keep people from feeling anything actually genuinely, profoundly pleasurable or painful because either of those things would be so negative and so bad for what the demonic work was trying to do. And he goes on and talks about the fact that we need, again, to find ideas fashionable or ridiculous, uh, ridiculous, not right and wrong. Right? This is where he does a bit, if you're, you, you saw it early on, about the church as the tempter's ally. Right? When a person's at church, what you need to try to do is make the church look ridiculous. You know, make it be you can't take it seriously because the person behind you is singing off key. Right? And I've been there. I remember distinctly one time at chapel when I was a student at ECCU. The guy behind me was not great with the singing, but loved to do it. Uh, and it was loud. And I remember I spent... I spent a lot of time just kind of snickering at that and then realizing after the worship service that I didn't do anything worshipful there. I was just making fun of the guy behind me because he sounded real bad. I fell exactly into the guy's trap. Right? That's exactly what they were trying to aim at. Make it look around that you sit there and be like, okay, hold on, how could I believe in a religion like this if this person believes that? Look at, look at what the, how foolish that guy looks. People do this at churches all the time. Uh, at the previous church that I was at, I was a pastor in charge of first impressions, right? So I was a guy who made sure that the bulletin looked good, who made sure that the fonts on the PowerPoint were what they were supposed to be. It was the most meticulously, arbitrarily frustrating job on the planet for me, right? And frequently I'd sit there and say, this doesn't matter. But the fact is it does because there are people who will tune out an entire worship service because the, there's an extra space in a bulletin or because the font's wrong. And we lose the ability to, to, to witness them. In fact, one thing that I read said that someone makes the decision if they're going to come back to church next week within the first 10 minutes of being in service, even before the pastor takes the stage. It's annoying how important those things have become, but they've become this way because we're looking for ways to be distracted. We're looking for ways to be distracted because society is built on distraction. Now, right here, I'm going to, I'm going to stop what I'm saying, because I could very easily jump into what I wrote my dissertation on, and I'm very tempted to do that, but I'm going to stick to the topic, because that's not why you're here. Uh, but every part of me is like, let's do that, uh, because when you, when you write a book, you want to talk about that. Uh, but so to curtail back from distraction, but we're looking at that, and when it comes to those distractions, the fourth thing that I want to look at is that what we need to do, or what, what the demons need to do in Screwtape's ideology, is replace the divine need with anything they can. Because humans are created to worship God. We are made in the divine image. We are made for community. We are made to worship and praise God, which means that there is an inherent divine need inside humanity. This is why every ancient civilization was inherently religious or spiritual in some way. This is why we had not actually seen a secular society until somewhere post-Cartesian epistemology, uh, somewhere in about the 17th century. And it's why secular society needs to develop ways to fake religion, as it were, to create some type of thing. Um, uh, I'm, I'm very mad at myself for blanking on his name right now. I shouldn't be. Uh, it'll come to me as I keep talking. But one of the leaders of the New Atheist Movement, he wrote a book um, on free will and a letter, a book called Letter to a Christian Nation. Um, but just a, an out-and-out atheist, absolutely hates Christianity, but he spent a lot of time with Buddhism of late. 
because he sees, because Buddhism is a, is a atheistic religion. Uh, it doesn't necessarily predicate the belief in a god. And so as he's uh, doing this, he's finding these religious handles he can pull into his secularism to try and scratch that itch. And so throughout the book, Screwtape talks about things like pride, sex, money, power. All of these are things that can be used to replace religion. Right? Pride is the worship of self. Right? It's not that I am now worshiping God. It's that I have put myself in the place that God is supposed to have. I ought to be second. I make myself first. Sex is the easiest of these to convince humanity, which is why our society has become so erotomaniacal, because the powerful force of this has become something that seems almost transcendent and therefore has become something that's supposed to give some type of meaning. And so our society has become obsessed with sex and sexuality. I'm sure you've noticed. It's become the driving force. It sells, it becomes a person's identity, it becomes everything. It becomes this driving, pushing force, and therefore it leads to this entire misunderstanding of what the individual is. But power and money are right there as well. And the thing with all four of these is outside of a Christian context, there is no satisfaction in any of them because they're pleasures that burn up. The person that has a billion dollars could have a billion and one dollars. Right? I, I find it always fascinating when I'm speaking with students and they, they get angry at CEOs that have billions and billions of dollars because they're like, they shouldn't have that much money. If I had that much money, I would, and I stopped them to go, no, you wouldn't. If you had that much money, you would do exactly what they're doing, right? And let's be serious. We've seen enough rich people be unhappy that there's no reason to think that money's gonna make you happy. Right? We've seen enough famous people be completely unhappy. Why do I think being famous would make me happy? We've seen powerful people. Like, looking through all these things that we're promised here, we've seen people have the thing that we think we ought to have and have it blow up in their face. Why do I think it would be different for me? Because I'm arrogant. And because I'm playing into the devil's hand. The fact is what we should do is look at the fact at their discontentment and say, I'm, I'm not going to be discontent. Like, I'm not going to be content in doing that. But as Lewis goes on, he says, as we're aiming at this, we also need to aim at things that aren't satisfied. On, at least on my copy, page 91 and 92, he talks about making it, making it to where women, this is, remember, this is in 1940, women not desire what is inherently masculine and making men desire what doesn't exist. Now, in this context, what he's saying for this was he talks about the fact that he, they convinced pretty much all women to hate beards, which... Uh, I'm not going to talk about that. Uh, that seems like a weird thing, but the idea of, of disliking masculinity, I think we can see some areas in 2021 where that might be uh, applicable. Uh, and men desiring what doesn't exist with the existence of Photoshop, with the existence of that. I mean, I actually hear, here's this. Uh, so my wife is live streaming this at home right now, so she can't actually murder me in this room. Uh, when I get home, which will be after she goes to bed. Uh, I, I'll, I'll be fine for a little bit. Uh, but I, she, she and I met on a um, she and I met on Christian Mingle, uh, and so when I sent her a message, uh, you know, I said hi and stuff. And so later as we were talking, she said, "Just to let you know, uh, one of the pictures was was is you know, touched up." And I was like, "What?" And it just it wasn't like at all. It was like something something like there was a glare on her face or whatever. But so I sit there. I'm like, "That's false advertising, hun." Like, what in the world are you doing, right? Well, well too, that, you know, this idea of the, the filters and stuff you can do on Instagram. But think about any picture, if you ever post anything on social media, right? What do you do when you post, you know, post a picture of your food? You don't post it in the least attractive way possible. You make sure the light hits it a certain way. Maybe it's sapia. Like, you do what you can to try and make this thing look appealing. And what we ultimately do, especially when it comes to things like uh, swimsuit models or stuff like that, is they couture and edit to the point that this person doesn't actually exist. The picture here is a figment, it's a fiction, it's a non-existing thing. And so what they've done is found a way to make it to where, at least speaking from the demons here, that sexuality is aimed at despising what is inherently feminine or masculine and aimed at what is non-actual, 
what doesn't actually exist. We try to build ourselves to be consumable. By the way, if this is a, if this is a topic that is of interest to you, there's a book that I want to recommend to you. I'm going to be horrible on this because I will not spell the name of the author because I cannot spell the name of the author. The author's name is J. That is the first part. And his last name is Budzicevsky. Um, good luck. He teaches at the University of Austin. Uh, but he has a book called On the Meaning of Sex. Uh, and he writes at the, about this at length. If you work with young people, uh, if you interact with young people, uh, this is one of the top five most important books I've read outside of scripture. Uh, I would recommend it to all of you. It is fantastic. Uh, you'll know you found it on Amazon because it has a yellow cover and it has his very hard name to pronounce that's there. But from there, I want to kind of, I want to end with the last point which is a kind of a few subsets of what I can talk about as a few readily available poisons. Throughout the screw tape letters, what Lewis does is lay out a few poisons that we could easily fall victim to without even realizing it, because it just seeps in from the culture that we live in. Uh, the first one is cynicism. Look, there is such a thing as a health, healthy skepticism. There is no such thing as a healthy cynicism. It is healthy to look at some propositions and say, possibly that's wrong. It's not healthy to be able to look at people and just presume that everyone is out to hurt you. To this, uh, he, he talks about uh, the, the idea of assuming that uh, innocuous things are contemptuous, right? That a person who has like breathe a certain way or like choose a certain way is just trying to bother you. Right? Maybe you thought that if, if you're running late somewhere and you're on the freeway and like a car gets in front of you and you're like, why? Why do you hate me? What are you doing? Right? And you move and you get behind another car does the same thing and you assume that before you got on the road, they all had a huddle. Uh, like two, two exits back, they're like, all right, here's the thing. Sam's coming by. We're going to have to ruin his day. Uh, we don't want him to think about the fact that he should have left earlier. Definitely going to be our fault. You know, like, no, like we do this. We make this assumption here. We assume it. So we just presume that anything that someone does that's mildly irritating to us probably has a very insidious motive behind it. There's an, this is an ideology behind things we can talk about today that are referred to as uh, things called microaggressions. Uh, they're just small little turns of phrase, whatever, that might irritate us, that because of that we assume that this person must have a deep-seated hatred uh, towards me in some way, that this is where this is birthed from. And so the fact is cynicism is never healthy. Cynicism is nothing we see modeled by any, any person pursuing God in scripture. We ought not look at that in any good way. Conversely, also another issue we have to look at is false piety. He talks heavily at false piety um, about the fact that he says, you know, false piety we can use to keep someone from church by saying, I don't have to go to church. I can just praise God wherever I am. Well, sure, yes, you can praise God wherever you are. And certainly, you could go to multiple churches. That, that, that's fine. But God calls us to be a part of a congregation. God calls us to, be, to not forsake the assembly of ourselves together and to be a part of a church body under the leadership of a shepherd or a pastor. We can't take something that is true and then hyper-spiritualize it to the point that we can ignore the other commands of Christ. That's a false piety and something that's very easily used to flee from God. And the last one of these things are what I can refer to as uh, the poison of living disembodiedly or atemporally. What I mean is this. Um, we live in the now. And Screwtape talks about the fact that it's better to try and make humans live in the past or in the future. Get caught in the past. Get caught just holding on to a regret for something you did before or something that happened to you before that you can't move on and just let that dictate and determine your life. It's much easier to sideline someone that way or constantly think about the future and just be chock full of fear and anxiety. Doing either of those two things makes someone useless in the present. And so both of those are fantastic. Now I will say Lewis does miss the fact that hope is future oriented. Uh, and so I think there's a bit of oversight there. It's not at all to say that, that hope in that way is bad. But the fact is, if we live obsessing past, and maybe, maybe a good example of this is when I was a college student, um, I would start my classes at the beginning of the term, and then halfway through the term is when you would register for the next semester. Um, and as soon as we'd get to the halfway point, I would stop really caring about the classes that I was in 
I would just want to start taking the classes for the next fall. And then when those classes would hit, I would love them until about October when I would register for the spring. And I'm like, okay, let's, ha let's be done with the fall. Let's bring on the spring, right? And so I got taken out for the last half of the semester each time because I was so busy looking forward that I missed what was now. If, if I'm not mistaken, it's actually kind of the, the general thesis of that song, Cats in the Cradle. The dad who's so obsessed with trying to provide for his family and aim towards a future that he totally misses his kids growing up. Like, it's easy for us to make that error. And then the last one on that, the disembodiedly, he makes a big deal on page 20, at least on, again, on my copy. At the very least, they can be persuaded that the bodily position makes no difference to their prayers, for they constantly forget what you must always remember, that they are animals, and that whatever their bodies do affects their souls. It's funny how mortals always picture us putting things in their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. There's something to that where we have done a great job not realizing that what we do with our bodies affects our souls. I don't know if you've ever taken the time to think through or ask, why there is this historical ideology that you get on your knees, you bow to pray. Well, the early church did that because it's hard to be prideful on your knees. That is a, that is a physical posture of submission. That is a posture of I've lost. That is a posture of I'm begging, I'm asking. I am not in control in this situation. And so the church moved heavily that you bow when you pray because it reinforces a mindset of praying. Now, I'm not saying that you must bow when you pray. I'm not saying that. But I do say that I find it fascinating. I always actually found it in, in Christian like worship songs and worship services that you could be sitting during the music, which I love it when that's happening, but that's just a personal preference. Um, but as soon as like I stand in awe of you or we're standing on holy ground, as soon as any of those hit, someone in the front row pops up immediately because the song said stand, so we're going to stand. But when a song says I'm falling on my knees, like we're good, we're fine. Like, like no, one takes, no one takes a dive. They're like, well, like spiritually I'm on my knees. Um, and again, not at all. I'm, I'm sure we bruise our jaws or something. But Physical posture matters. This is why, the, I mean, in old um, ideas of uh, chivalry or something like that, when someone leaves the table, you stand up. Uh, there's a level of respect or something that happens like that. And the physical embodiment of that uh, teaches us a certain level of respect. That's why some churches have such a, what's called a high liturgy, right? When the word of God is read, everyone stands. Not that it nips and you have to stand when you read God's word, but in doing so, the person is taught a certain way of being. What you do with your body affects the way that you think. In part, by the way, this is why sexual sin is able to dominate so heavily in our society, because that society, that, that is using the entirety of your body, and therefore it affects the entirety of how one thinks. But the way that we position ourselves, the way that we sit, even think about the fact is this, if I sit in a certain way when listening to you, I communicate to you a level of importance to you, but I also communicate to me a level of what, importance of what you're saying. It's one of the reasons that when I'm speaking, this, this will sound weird, um, if I had my druthers, I would wear shorts all the time. It doesn't matter if it's 30 degrees, it doesn't matter whatever, I would wear shorts. Uh, and one time I was going to preach in shorts and I was told by a pastor over me that you can't do that. Uh, and I was like, why not? He said, because you have to wear pants when you preach, which as a, as a, as a young 20-something person made me believe that this right here that, that's where the Holy Spirit lives. Uh, and he's, if you're in shorts, he ain't going to do his work. Um, but in part, though, there's a level of the fact that is I speak differently when that's what I'm wearing. And when I'm doing an academic presentation and I'm in full academic garb, I speak differently. Because what you wear and how you position yourself says something. Even, as you've probably noticed, I'm talking with my hands quite a bit because that's a thing that I do. And when I try to not talk with my hands, when I try and keep them down, I have a harder time talking because for me, as I'm speaking, this helps words come out. This keeps them bottled up. And the fact that this microphone is keeping me from walking has also been very difficult for me tonight uh, because in a classroom, I would have worked up a sweat, uh, which, as you all know, Old Spice is taken care of. So... <laughs> 
from there, I think that's actually probably the best place to end uh, and go ahead and turn off into any questions. And here's the thing, I don't know if there will be any questions, either from you uh, or that are here in person or from the online crew, but uh, we said there'd be a Q&A, and so I wanna go ahead and leave that open in case there is. If there's not, that's fine. Don't feel like you need to ask it. Also, um, as, I've, as I've already told you, I, I need to not get home until after my wife's asleep now. So uh, I'm just gonna stay and answer as many questions as people have. Don't feel like you have to stay if question Q&A time goes long. Leave at, at will, that no one will be offended uh, at all. Maybe the person asking a question will be, uh, but I won't be. So don't feel like you have to stay, uh, but I'm leaving this part open here. So we'll transfer over. Bruce has a microphone to his mouth. Yes. Your wife has been watching. Oh, sorry. Your wife has been watching, and she wanted you to know that Sam Harris is the name of the author. Yes, thank you, hon. You thank you. For. I'm so mad at me for not knowing that. And uh, she also, oh, ask him how late he thinks I'll be up. You <laughs> 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 might have created some trouble back at home, uh, Sam. I'm not sure. <laughs> Whoopsies. And, uh, and Jay Bujeshevsky was uh, another name that she provided. She's yes, Jay Bujeshevsky. I, I can't spell that, though. She's got the authors and thinkers' names at her fingertips. So Christy Bublet says, I like this. So there you go. That's not a question. But folks, if you have questions, now's the time. I'm just here to uh, monitor the online viewers, but you mm -hmm. in the room, you have the floor. Uh, Sam, if I could just ask you to repeat the question when you hear it so that everyone online can hear it as well. I will, and if it's a hard question, when I repeat it, I'll make it easier. Savvy veteran move. <laughs> sure. Yeah, okay, so the, the question was uh, towards the end, so Worm, Wormwood fails uh, and his patient, his patient dies. Um, and so there's a penalty that comes with this punishment uh, and the question was, what was that penalty? It, it's mildly nebulous, but in letter uh, 28, I think it is, 28 or 29, um, there's basically a reference that says either you're a successful demon or you're food. Uh, and in 31, Wormwood basically makes it sound like I'm going to eat you. So it sounds like uh, he became a souffle, uh, perhaps some jerky. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, so the question was, the book was written some time ago, 1941, 42 you know, era, so we're looking at, what, 80 years? Um, do I think that there's any new tactics uh, that uh, Satan's using? One thing I found, again, as I reviewed this, um, it seems like this is a playbook for today. Like, so much of what is being, being done or being talked about or being discussed, gosh, it, it, it sounds very much like he's making use, Lewis is, Lewis had his finger on the pulse of um, where society was headed. Uh, the 20th century was incredibly blessed by both uh, C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer. Uh, both of them understood history and they understood the trajectory of where history was going. Um, and we're, we're blessed today that some of the people who studied and were influenced by them are still writing. I would say, actually, if you enjoyed this book, there is a thinker named Oz Guinness uh, Oz Guinness studied under Francis Schaeffer and was heavily influenced by Lewis um, and is good friends with Doug Gresham, who is Lewis's stepson. He has written multiple books, but one of them he has written is called The Last Christian on Earth, which he wrote in the style of Screwtape. It came out, I think, about nine years ago. Um, and in that book, he kind of tries to update some of the tactics, but you'll notice a lot of overlap. So if that's a thing of interest, that book might be um, fascinating too. But no, uh, when it comes down to whatever tactics, uh, I really, I really think that this playbook is still pretty much the same, if not, uh, if not just this in a more extreme fashion. Um, I don't really know that anyone today 
actually cares about things being accurate, right? The idea that we need to make things seem fashionable more so than right or wrong. Well, we actually live in a, in a time that's been boiled down, not to jump too deep into the philosophy sphere, but we boil down put time in time in which truth has become so completely subjective that the idea of something being perpetually uh, true transculturally and transhistorically um, is that, in fact, if you assert that, you've become oppressive. Uh, so what I would say is actually what we see here is that maybe it's the fruition of what Screwtape and crew have been doing. Uh, so they're maybe even having to work less. Or perhaps I would imagine that if, Screw if Lewis were to write something today, it would be Screwtape kind of being surprised that they've gone even further than they expected uh, and trying to figure out what to do with all the bounty that social media has given them. Uh, because actually I would say I think that has become mainly the easiest way because what they're able to do with, with social media is convince people that they have community so they don't need community when they actually lack community and therefore we've invented something called loneliness uh, at a massive, massive degree, um, which has been incredibly detrimental. That's a great question. Uh, yes? Yeah, no, that's a great question. The question is, what do I think the name screw tape means? <laughs> Got no clue. Like wormwood, wormwood is a bitter, bitter piece of wood. Like, sure. Screw tape, I actually don't know. Um, and uh, it's, I, I was not able to determine it. And I think it, it, it sounds dastardly, uh, but offhand, I got nothing for you. So it's, that's one thing I try to tell my students. That if you don't know the answer, it's better to say it. Uh, and so I got to say I'm ignorant on that one. Good question. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so the question was, uh, Screwtape is written in 41, 42, uh, in that hellish period. And then in 43, we have another of his books called The Abolition of Man. Um, I think there's going to be some type of overlap, even though Lewis, like he points at this idea of uh, looking at an idea being fashionable in Screwtape, he never comes full out swinging about this idea of uh, the burgeoning thing that would eventually become postmodernism uh, or complete relativism or subjectivity. He doesn't necessarily direct that additionally in here, but you could see how in the book The Abolition of Man, which uh, The Abolition of Man is a book that Lewis wrote where he defends uh, a, an essential essence to humanity without appealing to scripture. Uh, he tries to make the argument apart from appealing to scripture just merely using the faculties of natural reason. And so though in those three lectures that he gives, there's, a, there's gonna be some connecting points in that in Abolition of Man, he's saying that there's something about humanity where we cannot be either base visceral animals or completely uh, esoteric robots. There's something about having properly ordered uh, passions uh, and emotions that must be properly used. Where, that's where virtue comes in. Um, Screwtape is talking about how, how to pervert the base consciousness. Even the way he's talked about this, he talks about humans primarily as animals, the lower level. So I think maybe a good connection we could see is that we fall into the tempter's traps when we view humans as anything other than humans and boil them down to either this um, singular identity thing that's shallowed out um, or in this base animalistic type way. But I don't, beyond that, I don't think there's any direct connection um, between the two. I'm sorry? They weren't happening at the same time. Um, no. So those two wouldn't be happening at the same time. Uh, Screwtape has been published. There might be, this is me project, you know, guessing, it might be that Screwtape's success led to him being able to do the lectures that became the Abolition of Man, but the writing didn't overlap. Um, the stage play of Screwtape Letters? That one I haven't. I saw the stage play of The Great Divorce, uh, and it was fantastic. Uh, uh, the the Screwtape ones, I've not had the chance to, unfortunately, but uh, I imagine it was glorious. Did you did you see it? Yes. Well, now I'm envious of you. Uh, and Screw, Screwtape just got me. So that's, that's fantastic. Yeah.
So, so that's a great question. The question is, um, how soon after Lewis's conversion did he start churning out books? Because he churned out quite a few books. Uh, I will say, there is one sample of his writing from before his conversion that you can get. It's a collection of poems called um, uh, Spirits in Bondage. Um, it's very bad. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's not great. Lewis even says it's not good. Uh, but it's there, and you can use it to... Um, how quickly that. Uh, he did not waste much time uh, through his conversion. Keep in mind, at the time that Lewis converts, he already has two doctorates under his name. Um, and he's, he, his conversion story is, is a fascinating one. Uh, and basically, he converts from atheism to theism, and then he converts to uh, he converts from theism to Christianity because of a conversation he had with um, J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, where Tolkien basically makes the argument, hey, all those ancient myths that you like are true in Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of those myths, and so he is true myth. Um, and, and Tolkien presented that, and the next day when he said he had converted, Tolkien presumed he'd become a Catholic, and Lewis is like, but not really. Um, but so after that, given the fact that he's already thinking in this mythological sphere, it's, it's not but a few years that he starts off with Out of the Silent Planet. Uh, and he starts chucking these things out pretty rapid fire after that point in time, given the fact that when you look at the series, because he, aside from his, he has multiple fiction books, he has nonfiction books, and then he has these collections of essays and sermons that he gave, um, and then the expansive collection of letters that are out there. He was just a nonstop writing machine. So yeah, it very much was not, you know, we see in the New Testament, um, Paul converts and then he locks himself away for three years uh, before he starts writing. Lewis is more like, let's hit the ground running. Uh, like, let's do this. Uh, and so he, he got off the motorcycle uh, at the zoo, a, a Christian, uh, and he, he converts. Sorry, I'm saying that as though that that you have context for what I mean. That, that, that's not just a saying. Uh, he said his conversion was fairly innocuous. Uh, he and his brother, after the, the night he talked with Tolkien, the next day he and his brother Warney were going to the zoo, and he said he got on the back of the motorcycle, not a Christian, and he got off the motorcycle, a Christian. Uh, and so, I doesn't know if that says anything about Warney's driving uh, or anything to that extent, but uh, that was what I meant when I made that statement. Um, but so from there, it was just a, a kind of a, a thing that happened and then it just dictated. He was already writing a lot, but because this became the central idea of how he saw the world, that became the heartbeat of everything he wrote. So yeah, no, there wasn't much time in between at all. Any others? Yeah. Okay, so he writes mere, so, um, Lewis writes Mere Christianity initially as four talks that happened during World War II. So uh, prior to his conversion, um, or rather I should say that Mere Christianity is preceded by Out of the Silent Planet, at least the writing of Paralandra and, Out of the, uh, and the Hideous Strength, and Screwtape Letters. So Mere Christianity and Abolition of Man overlap. Um, so we're looking at a little bit of time there, but it's in fairly rapid fire succession because this is 41, um, 43, mere Christianity is the talks are given and then it's edited. It appears within just a few years of screw tape. So he has his two biggest hits as it were, uh, hit pretty rapid fire. Uh, any others? Okay, well, uh, like I said, I'm happy. I'll answer whatever other questions if there are any after. Also, I wanna thank those of you who were in this section and then in that section who had to endure that sun, that window uh, hitting here, uh, uh, like the, the this motion on your part, like that, that, was, that, was, that was enduring, uh, talking about temptations in church uh, and things that can be distracted and you're like, not today, screw tape. Uh, like that was fantastic. Thank you so much for that. Thank you guys for coming. Uh, I hope this was beneficial and helpful uh, and you guys have, a good day. <laughs>